Some people just rate everything from three to five and others, you know, rate really low from one to three. Again, the more data you have, the more you can factor in. And if you're doing a good job, just having a better output. It's kind of unlimited. Again, can't reach perfection. Just trying to, you know, assess more and more uh, data points to make your, your, your system better. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that's everyday technology. Mix it up again. <laughs> I think I've lost track of where you're putting the emphasis on these now. Well, first of all, it was <laughs> the magicians. And then the second time it was welcome to that. And then that, that was at the end. So I'm keeping track, as you can tell. Good. I think that's the important thing. Hello, listeners. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Sam? What have you been up to? I'm good. I'm good. This week's been an interesting week. I offered to do a bit of a mentorship session with with a friend of mine who was kind of struggle he he has kind of and interestingly we speak about this in in the coming episode which is uh, which is an interesting uh, coincidence but he's uh, he has a lot of these uh, kind of startup ideas and some he's already implementing others he's thinking about implementing and some of them is a is a pipe dream or not not well fleshed out and he was he was struggling with a bit of focus and struggling with a bit of really seeing how all these things are interconnected in some sort of way. So I sat down with him and kind of winged it. I've I've been working with a business coach over the last six, seven, eight weeks. And I felt like some of the some of the things I've been doing with the business coach actually helped me in my own kind of alignment and more specifically filling my days with with actionable tasks that drive towards a kind of you know goal a, a mission you know with my, with my business and i just sort of thought the things he's sort of struggling with were things that i w- i was struggling with before i kind of did a few of these bits and bobs now my mentor didn't it, it was an uninten- unintentional side effect of the uh, of the work that we've been doing, but certainly I felt like I could refine that. So it was just an interesting, interesting session that I run with him, and it's it's going to be an ongoing thing because, of course, you're not going to nail it in an hour. Hmm. Um, but I think we're on the right steps to to doing that, and I've just sort of quite enjoyed being that mentor, being that person just to listen and help solve an issue rather than tell them what to do. You know, it's easy to tell someone what to do. So And is this the first time you're doing it as a as a as a business mentor? Because I, I presume you've done like dev mentoring before, I suppose. Yeah, I've done dev mentorship um and kind of all that sort of thing. And I don't know. Um yeah, of course. Yeah, it's the first time I've done it. And I think that's a testament to kind of just trying things just trying things and and seeing how they go. I mean, it was a pretty low bar to entry. It seemed like something I could potentially tackle. I mean, it's still not, uh, you know, air quotes, success yet. It's still not a success yet, but it's certainly something which I've surprisingly found myself to enjoy. That's really cool. So from the the first session, then, do you feel like you learned something as well as a mentor? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's, it's, this was an idea I thought, hmm, I maybe could help him. And at the very least, focusing on one issue just for an hour, it doesn't matter if your technique or your method or your process is well-defined. The simple fact of focusing on one thing for an hour is, is going to be helpful to anyone, you know. 
so I, you know, I went into it having thought that, you know, it doesn't matter whether this process was going to work or not work, but it just so happens actually it's starting to, to flourish and it's starting to open out the subsequent questions and, and, and sessions that I have sort of lined up, you know, Hey, it might be something I offer on my website as a paid for service. I don't know, but, it, but what I learned was just actually one that, um, it seems to be a, a logical way forward you know a logical first step and and two just that well yeah just uh, again just testament just to throwing yourself into things and actually if you've got a, enough of a oh i don't know i don't know what i'm saying but yeah <laughs> i think it's very cool though i mean the um i think you learn a lot just from talking things through things through i certainly do and i think um a lot of this is about connections and thoughts and whether that's connections with people or connections you're making in your brain, you know, that just conversations, talking to people, bring ideas together. I think that's really important. And if you can help somebody else as much as you can learn from somebody else, then, you know, that's always going to be positive. I look forward to hearing a bit more about how that relationship develops. That'll be exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm not claiming to be an expert. I've just, I've literally just put two and two together and thought, well, the problems he's having I had and one way I've certainly not got out of, but certainly something I've, I've had good success with so far. I found this, this, and this to be, to, to help me on that journey. So yeah, it's been, it's been enjoyable. So yeah. Well, in, in terms of putting two and two together, you know, I think we'll cover a little bit of that on the show. eh? <laughs> <laughs> Who have we got on the show today, Chris? Well, today on the show, we have serial entrepreneur Nicholas Mendy Harrett, who is the founder of Palette Club, which is a startup in the US that is aiming to demystify the world of wine using artificial intelligence and blind taste tests to build customers' taste profiles. It's a hugely interesting business model with massive potential. So there's a lot to explore in this episode as we dive into data science to first define taste and then choose wines that match. Sounds good. And once again, I'll ask our listeners to uh, give us a follow on Twitter, that tech show underscore and a... Uh... A five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Just, you know, it's right there. If you're listening to this on Apple and we know like a big percentage of you do, just give us a little five-star rating. It really does help. There we go. Wow. Without further ado, here is Nicholas. Bonjour everyone, I'm Nicolas Mandera. I'm the founder and CEO of Palette Club, which is a new uh, platform created around your taste uh, using artificial intelligence to match the best wines and premium foods to your personal taste. So we use 200 traits found in taste and wine to make cal calculations and algorithms to figure out your personal taste. Let's get into that. AI and taste. How did you get into that? Well, when I moved to California six years ago as a Frenchman, I thought I knew a lot about wine, uh, as you could expect from French people. And I suddenly was lost in front of the shelf, felt a little bit like an idiot in front of, you know, the wines from all over the world. And I figured that's actually a main problem in the wine industry uh, in general. And since I've built quite a lot of e-commerce companies and data science related recommendation engines in the past, I asked a bunch of uh, mathematicians, data scientists and wine experts if we could come up with a real model where we would solve the problem of choice. And 
you know, in France, for instance, uh, to start there, uh, French people drink French wines and Italian people drink Italian wines. And then you have a limited selection in the US of those. But at the same time, you have wines from all over the world, uh, literally a million different bottles in the world. And just in the US alone, 225,000 are filed at the TTB every year. So even if you're a pro, you know, like professional sommeliers I work with, they, they taste max like four or 5,000 bottles a year. So even if you're a pro and you do some blind tasting, you're just going to get very often wrong or, or not really know about everything. And then the other reason why I figured it was the main problem is distribution and supply chain in the US because you have that three-tier system with a lot of middlemen. So it's basically a product-pushed industry which means in the end on the shelf, the wines which are decided by other people are done so upon you know, the best margin for them and not necessarily about what's the best value for you. So if you look at it as an industry in the whole, it's a very large $360 billion industry in the world. It's also the most fragmented of that size, where in the end, if you accumulate the fact that the, the distribution is not driven by your personal interests and the sale is never about your taste or it's really hard to figure out actually your taste and particularly the guy selling wine to you that is actually a very it's very hard to get the, the good value basically i would say 90 percent of the cases even when you think you know a little bit or you're going to go for that cab or chardonnay you're not making a good deal so this is what we solve uh, with Palat club but I can see a number of hard problems that you've got to solve. One, you've got to know lots of different things about all of these different wines. And you talked about, you know, how many millions of bottles there are with however many more, the more there are coming every year. And then you've got to also figure out what people like. And do you, what do you market segment those people as well? I mean, how do you wedge into that in terms of defining like an AI model? So this is where we came up with a complete different approach than the industry. You know, because that's a long-lasting problem, I would say even overdue problem in the wine industry, uh, everybody came with all sorts of gimmicks, right? So wine critics scores and and whatever, you know, competition fairs, gold medals, this and that. And also grapes, like in the US particularly, wine is very defined by grape. The, the reality is this is not a very good indicator. If you talk to, to wine experts, I mean, Considering premium wines above like $15 price points, the grape is only like maybe 25% of the final taste. It can define a lot of things, obviously, but, uh, you know, and then there are blends and then there's uh, vintages. And before anything else, the winemakers touch, which I call artists when they do their real good job is made of you know dozens of decisions during the year and then obviously during the winemaking and fermentation and all the different processes and steps there's also a lot of unknowns such as you know 73 additives are actually authorized in the u.s for about 40 in, in europe uh, these are not indicated in the bottle either so th there's so many ways to play with what is inside the bottle so to reply to your question more precisely the way we considered is we 
came up with this model of 200 trades found in Wine Taste. We reorganized everything and we created a customer feedback loop using blind tasting. Why we use blind tasting is not only because it's fun, so you could say, yeah, that's a gimmick, but it's obvious that people are very biased in their ratings and their consideration of whether if the wine is good if they know the label before. So the way it works is we ship a starting kit with four half bottles. You can also take a quiz, but that's not as precise as tasting the wines, right? And that starting kit comes in blind taste mode. So we, we cover the label with a small tissue and secret well number. And so it's actually a fun experience to do with friends. Um, but the only thing we ask from customers is to rate the wines from one to five in, in the app. It's a very simple, straightforward process. And that is enough information for us to start putting you on the map. So I will get back to that, the map of taste. But why we have very precise information as opposed to any other type of things out there is because previously, before we ship the balls, they're tasted by professional sommeliers and we enter in our data model about, on, on average, 30 traits precisely about those wines. And this is done by at least two different sommeliers. So they have, you know, different tastes, etc. So that gives us a lot of information because if you consider uh, these four bottles to start with are of course very different and they're meant to. So there's always like some you will like, not like, and they have like, you know, very, very extreme traits usually matter and things like acidity, alcohol level, sweetness, tannins, uh, you know, oak aromas, uh, and so on. And so with those four ratings, we put you on the map. So how is the map? The map is now more than 12,000 ratings from, from customers, thousands of profiles. So we have seen with the data clusters and we've defined those clusters. We've actually given them funny names, which is the acid tripper or the Italian grandmother. <laughs> or, you know, so again, for, so the experience is a little bit more fun. And so we, after those four ratings, we basically explained to you that you know, your affinity to, to a certain cluster and basically also your main cluster. It, it doesn't mean we put you just in one cluster and that's it. We consider you have an affinity with different clusters, right? So the other thing we do is we show you your main sensitivity to the main traits. And if you rate more balls, then we actually show secondary traits such as cherry or black fruit or you know can get spice etc and we also show your percentage of match to different classical wines as they are supposed to be so that's more or less a percentage of match to the 140 different types of wines in the world and this is another type of mapping basically so so that you know a little bit where you are so that's the first step basically to try to understand your taste so when you've got four bottles then, that puts you on the map. How does that work then? Do you then get into like, here's the next range and you know here's another four bottles to see if you like these ones and then it allows us to push you in, in one direction or another to sort of refine it? Is that how it works? Or Yeah, so you have two ways uh, to go after that uh, with us and that's the business side. You can either buy wines to the shop and every wine we have in the portfolio has been duly expertized basically by, by the sommeliers. So we indicate the percentage of match for every bottle using all those traits and using your profile, a little bit like Netflix for wine if you want. But this is, again, it's like a very vertical approach. It's not like, 
oh, we're going to give you a percentage of match for millions of balls. We're like very precise on the balls we are we have in the portfolio. So, and the main uh, way we do, and this is where we come up, came up as a business model actually, is a subscription based, but on your terms. So you you define. The price point, the number of balls, the frequency of shipping, you can change it anytime. And then it's actually the algorithms choosing the balls for you. You don't have to do anything. You just have to choose your parameters, basically. So it's a little bit as if you had a private sommelier, your digital taste app in your pocket, which chooses wines for you, but knowing your taste and using that as science. So it's basically for, it's even for connoisseurs, which are actually in most cases pretty bluffed about what we came out came out with that taste it's for everybody who likes you know good wine who just wants to be completely taken care of and this is uh it's our vision basically of the world of of tomorrow of taste and premium foods uh, obviously we want to apply this not only to wine it's a, it's a global approach for things like chocolate coffee whiskey you know even perfume every i mean uh, wine is before anything else, taste is before anything else, you're linked to your smell. And the same traits you have in wine, you can find in many other um, many other things in life. So think of us like uh, the first digital taste app in the sense that we try to measure your taste literally with data science applied to wine at first. So to solve that wine issue, that wine buying problem in general, bringing you value and then applicable to many other things. Well, what's that engagement like when it comes to people actually giving that feedback? Because it's very easy, because I know this from experience on something like, uh, I'm not sure if you have it over there in the US, but we have something called HelloFresh, where you get food delivery and it's all packaged for you and you're encouraged to rate those deliveries. I don't think there's any kind of AI behind the scenes, but they always ask for feedback on the meals and I barely ever rate them, although I should do because it allows me to remember what what meals I, I liked and enjoyed. What is the engagement like? Do you struggle with kind of getting people to rate every box that they get? And if you don't, how have you encouraged that engagement? Yeah, so this is a very, very good question. I know I look fresh and, and obviously I'm very familiar with recommendation systems. And, you know, Amazon is probably one of the pioneers there and about, you know, trying to get your ratings and reviews from customers, etc. Everybody does it. So to reply straight, more straight to your question, we have 80% people rating the balls because it's it's different from all the, you know, Everybody requesting after you stay in a hotel room, how do you talk about this hotel or whatever? The reason is because our, our entire experience is based on that. So the entire like journey and promise of the product is based on that. So when people become customers, they know, you know, this is basically about it. We incentivize a little bit with a loyalty program. The more you rate, basically you get sort of coins and then you can get more free balls. But I don't even think that this is like the main driver. The main driver is because people understand this is really ultra personalized and the difference with just rating for other people is that you really get a tasting profile you really get a reward and output generally 
from from the app so you learn about your your taste it's it's a sort of educational side of it i think which which is important for for people and also because you're solving a problem which is like so many bottles around there but the, there is an interesting component in your in your question i want to venture in is you know the ratings obviously it's great for companies to get feedback from you know the products they deliver in the case of hello fresh i believe they do that well and you know they've been around now for a while so here is a, a very important thing usually people don't mention too much is there's a big difference between being centralized only on you like super personalized so on your personal taste and of course customer satisfaction and considering as opposed to that ratings from other people so this is where categories matter so if you look at music or taste for instance i think it's very similar the reason is it's just because it's your own personal taste doesn't mean that if you're very good friends with someone and you have the same social graph that you're going to like exactly the same wine or the same perfume or the same music not at all it's very personal so when recommendation systems are built on global you know what other people think on these type of categories which are very personalized that is not very meaningful in my opinion it's more like you know to try to drive more sense about you know people's purchase etc so you know obviously if if it's um you know a movie or a restaurant there's components of social graph and people who are like you that's totally fine and i think it makes sense there on these type of uh, categories on things like again like wine and taste and music uh, you should be really focused on that person that particular person and this is what we do and this is quite different from from other other products again i i don't have a particular opinion on on the rating system or how it goes with our fresh but most companies you know they just get feedback from the customers they put that into they they use that data obviously as well and it's you know it's good to measure satisfaction it's good to increase retention and to understand the customer and even to somehow understand the customer taste uh, i believe they you know they will factor that in but i also believe it's pretty far away from a pure data science model which is really focused on so many traits uh, what we do so what i'm getting from that then is because AI and it is such a key driver in your business model. Well, not, not necessarily the business model, but you're almost your, it's the reason why people would go to you. It's almost like if you don't engage with the platform, if you don't provide that feedback, you're not going to progress as a, as a customer. I'm not going to progress or get what's right for me. It is just not going to know anything about me. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we have a few customers, you know, there's different types of customers. So uh, some of them, they're just happy that we pick up wines and they, you know, they don't engage too much in the ratings. They're just happy with the wines and that's it because we curate. Uh, I mean, it's a double curation if you want. We really like curate wines from smaller artisan winemakers, which make better value. And then we bring that directly. And then there's a creation and matching to your taste. So, uh, but most people do rate, you know, they start rating a lot. And then once they have a, a full profile, they kind of, you know, they don't need to rate that much, but they still do, you know, then occasionally, and it, it's it's still fun. I think, you know, in in things, data science, it's where you apply it and, you know, to, to, to what. So, 
if you consider the realms of you know data science machine learning artificial intelligence or whatever how you name it we are doing we're still applying something which is quite simple and which doesn't have that much data if you then there are some areas of course of tech where it's way way beyond we might get there actually because there is no limit in the number of things you can measure in matter of taste it's actually a very complicated thing you can also take factors into account such as you know weather or you know season and try to get some information about context uh, even the the time you know and of course obviously food pairing and all these type of things so there's like a lot of type of data you can build in i think what makes sense for the consumer is that it it's very simple for the consumer that it that it brings value to to, to them and this is what we're trying to do there's one important thing here and on the business model side somehow is uh, i want to explain as well is thanks to that model and thanks to the fact that we figure out people's personal taste that enables also a complete um, what i call a reverse supply chain model so if you look at foods in general and particularly wine as i mentioned before it's a product push industry so you have like wineries produce wine they try to sell it directly to the consumer which they don't necessarily know and they mostly push it through different distribution channels again people make decisions for the customer basically why they don't know the customer right so and then that maximizes the margin until it's a shelf and you pay actually the you know the maximum price uh, in our model it's the other way around we figure out people's personal tastes and then the more you have you, and particularly in the subscription model we already know how many balls which price point which type of cluster it's to need to ship we can literally go buy the wines according to people's taste so when we taste a new wine uh, at winery and we enter the data uh, in our back end we instantly know how many people uh, that matches and everything is driven by the data so i went a little bit further to from your question but i think in my world it's more about you know how can the the data the ai be applied so that it makes sense and brings value to the customer and that's everything about our brand is is that so you know this is what you want to do i think this is how you can strive so are you feeding that data back to the actual winemakers then as well to say like should we like more of this or more or unless of that or Absolutely. So we don't share private data such as, you know, uh, customers tasting profiles uh, or emails or whatever that remains. Uh, we, we never sell it. We never share it. But yes, on an anonymous space, we um, started to share and winemakers are actually way more interested than we thought in the first place to have that data because they don't have it even like you know premium wineries have been operated operating for so many years they use a lot of data in even you know with drones and measuring agro uh, levels and they use a lot of data in the winemaking process but they don't know the data the clusters the things we start to figure out now from a customer perspective and so they're very very interested we haven't it was not the, the, the starting business model to, to try to sell it to them. We're more like uh, we want to be considered as partners and, and bring them, you know, valuable data. 
Um, the type of data which they're interested in is literally linked to the clusters as well. And to, to explain a little bit more what that means, it's not about, oh, there, there is like 80% of people like strong acidity. It's more complicated than that. It's um, clusters of data, a matter of taste, is combination. So if I take a very simple example is, you know, I like chocolate and I like uh, blueberries. But I don't like when you have a dessert, a chocolate dessert with, you know, blueberries or raspberries combined. So, and this is, because, and there are many people like that. It's because, you know, the, the, the chocolate taste with whatever the acidity of the, of, of the berries doesn't mix well with my taste. So in, in things wine, you have, think of, you know, you have dozens of components and so it's a mix. So, of course, you have some components from way, the scriptures are way more important than others. But let's say uh, one main cluster is people like strong acidity with medium tannins and earthiness. And then you figure out actually there are subclusters that, let's say, just a rough number, 10% of the people really like that type of taste. Okay. So then you will find subclusters. You will actually find that 60% of the people like that, they like it better if there is a lot of blood fruit. Okay. So once you have more of these information and data, obviously you, you can start to put people on the map. And I can tell you one thing, which is before I started this, I was kind of wondering, oh, what if, you know, everybody has the same taste and, you know, then everything. Well, I was going to ask you that, whether there's like a, is there, is there like a, you know, a bell curve where there's a big cluster of people in the middle and then it fans out or? There is absolutely not. It's actually the opposite of what we thought. It's like completely, you know, it's, it's scattered. But again, there is like clusters. So, you know, we've done numerous tastings as events as well, pre-pandemic and now again, where I saw people, you know, even couples like fighting on the ratings of the wines because, you know, the two first wines, the, the first person would put one star and the other five star. And then they would, the second wine, they would do five star and one star. Exactly reverse mode so it's uh, very different from from one person to the next but again there are you know there are similar tastes we'll give you one number for instance which is uh we, I, I used a couple of times you know there was robert parker and people who are listeners here they know uh, of course that name if they've been a little bit into wine so he was the most famous wine critic particularly in the 90s um and he he had a, a a very very good, of course, uh, sense of taste, and but his taste was like he liked bold wines mostly, and you know, very structured, strong body, etc. So he rated them very high, and that changed a lot of things in the industry because if he gave a very good uh, rating to a wine, that wine would literally sell much more, whatever, because of its basically or this celebrity type of uh, of, of way. So now he's like retired for a while but you know there's still all these wine critics there but this is one particular taste so when we measure that and among americans or europeans and we consider how many people really like that type of bold taste which you could be defined as you know the the napa cab or the um, the the kind of heavier left bank bordeaux or the chateauneuf du pape type of products it's actually only 25% of people who tend to go more to those type of clusters. So that means, you know, the industry has been like biased for a very long time by, by that type of taste. And it's not the right taste for 75% of the people. It's not, it's not their, their, their favorite ones. Of course, now things have changed. A lot of people like Burgundies and, 
and more balanced wines from and all sorts of again like more specific tastes with more spice more this more that um but anyway this is what we figure out so is this uh, a totally unique idea then in the wine industry to apply data science you're the first people doing this um i would say we're the first people to do it with that type of approach we're not the first people uh, i mean that would be very arrogant on my side to say we're the only ones using data uh, obviously you know there, there are some famous apps which have been along for a long time they have a lot of customer ratings about but they have a more horizontal approach which is like oh, okay here are millions of bottles this is what people rate and depending on your ratings and what you buy we're going to define more more or less what you like for me, that's more the old school of reviews and ratings. Uh, but again, they have a lot of data, so they are they also have very interesting data. Then there are people who have worked on taste as well. Um, more particularly, I mean, there's a lot of research on taste, uh, which is goes way deeper than we actually do. And there's a lot of data as well on wine, all those things, food by the industry, where they use all sorts of, of data. What is unique about us is that feedback loop. That, that we use a number of data points and then we get that unbiased blind tasting exactly on the balls where we have the maximum information. So that's, to my knowledge, nobody else does. Yeah, I like the blind tasting thing. I saw that on your website, especially with the um, the party as well, hosting a blind tasting party. That sounds like a pretty good way of get, gaining customers, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because... We started this really generally as, you know, say we need to use blindism because we have all those proofs from from surveys and stuff that there's so much bias if you already know the label, right? So we said we need to use blind tasting. And then obviously we, we figured customers love the experience and it's fun and they love to do it with their friends and compare their profiles. And, you know, so many people came to us, oh, you should mix this with a dating app so people go to <laughs> the same cluster and things like that. So, so obviously we are continuing and we, we put it as a core feature now because, I mean, you know, customers like it. And to, to go back to one of your prior questions there about, you know, how many people rate. So this is also because it's core of the product. This is how people understand that it makes sense to rate. And so a lot of people are rating. So no, it's, it's um, so far, I think we, we're not going to change that type of feature or aspect of the product uh, for a while because it, it works and makes people, you know, happy and have a good time. So, so is wine dating on the horizon then? <laughs> well, I, I, it's more, it's, it's getting steam in my priority list. I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't talked with dating apps yet about that, but that might be a thing <laughs> in, in the close future. With what you're sending then to customers, you, you mentioned you put a bit of tissue over the label. Is that for the parties or is that via this? the subscription service or have I got that wrong? Every bottle we ship is prior, is in our logistics center wrapped by a purple tissue for red and, and yellow tissue for white and rosé for rosé. <laughs> I mean, pink for rosé. So they are able to see then the label if they want to know what the... Oh yeah, of course. I mean, you can cheat and you, and anyway, we, uh, we don't uh, produce wine. We are not doing what 
there are a lot of fake wineries somehow uh, on the internet selling bulk juice. So they buy like, you know, 50 cent or a dollar liter, then they slap the label on it and then they ship wines. We don't do that at all. We, we buy finished wines by artisan winemakers and we show you in the app all the details, the tasting notes, the winemakers, where it comes from. And obviously you can just remove the tissue in uh, in a fraction of a second and, and, and see the label. So it's not about you know we don't want to substitute and say oh this is like a palette club wine it's 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 palette club curated from winemakers and wine tasting purpose is only for two things obviously the data science to work better and and for fun so no of course we we, we it's a sticker with a secret bottle number which comes with a tissue and so basically your next shipment let's say you have wine number 239 uh, it's auto populated in the app we already know of course that you have received that ball so you just go in the app boom you see that 239 you just have to rate from one to five it's as simple as that mm-hmm. so getting back on the data science thing again in my head i'm i'm th- thinking of two major kind of points of interest when it comes to the data that you could cross-reference to build up a profile. And in my head, I'm, I'm calling these internal and external. And internal uh, sort of factors would be would be stuff like time of year that a wine was bottled, or it could have been an anomaly. Potentially, maybe that maybe the the manufacturer maybe tried something new in that bottle, or there was something unique about that batch that went out that they could determine. It could be that they had a weird, weirdly cold summer or something like that. These sorts of factors can change the the, the sort of characteristics of a, of a batch of, of wine. The external factors which you or the supplier might not have control over could be something like. The things you mentioned earlier around that they like chocolate or blueberry. It feels like the customer has potentially a million different possibilities that could affect why they've rated it a certain way that you might not have um, you might not have control over. When it comes to data collection or any kind of assessment on those factors, are the wine manufacturers providing you with that those kind of data such as weirdly cold summer and are the customers providing you with some sort of personal data or have you got your system and 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 you're just collecting data that plugs directly into the system that you've defined to start answering here uh, i want to say um I don't think perfection exists here. I mean, you can have the perfect wine with the perfect taste, whatever. At some point you have an epiphany and like, you know, can't get better, but more globally in things data about what the type of things we measure with wine and and your personal taste, we know, I mean, you can't reach perfection, but basically you're, you have to aim for it. Right. So I will give you one, one number, which at least shows that it works. (laughs) So, because we haven't talked about that. We can measure the difference between when we don't know anything about your taste, right? As when we should do the first shipment, which can be a starting kit or just because you rate some of our bottles for the first time. So the average rating and, and you know, from on a scale of five is 3.2. Um, so you could say people are a little bit more optimistic. And it's not that high because obviously the first bottles we ship are very, very different. So we ask people to rate low when you don't like uh, for, for so that it works better once we have algorithmified so basically once we choose balls because we have a starting profile from you and you rate balls and we can measure that 
as well as the same balls, as well as the same person. So the average rating goes to 4.1 out of five. So it's a significant increase, which tells us at least what we're doing works. And we're talking here about thousands, thousands of ratings and profiles. So uh, it's, I think the, the numbers are meaningful already. And we know we're never going to be able to get to five just because, you know, different people rate differently. And to get back to your other points of the questions is, there are numerous data points we can use. So your, your question about vintages, uh, obviously the vintage and the AVA and all sorts of other components, such as, you know, very factual components, such as, you know, the grapes used and, and, and even the type of winemaker, which usually have their specific twist, etc., are in the system. But then the main thing is when the wine is tasted by two sommeliers, that, you know, that's a 15-minute process where they basically taste several times the same wine to enter what they think about the data. Again, these are professionally trained, so they usually have, you know, a sense, a much higher sense of things. And I, I will explain to you just through one trait, for instance, okay? A professional sommelier tasting wines like that makes a difference between fruitiness and sweetness. Somebody who just likes to drink wine doesn't necessarily make that difference. Okay, so the other part of your question of your question is, you know, the data about context of obviously there are things we will never know uh, when customers rate wines. It makes a difference if they eat food at the same time. We recommend to start with not to do it. It doesn't mean we're not interested in food pairing on the contrary, but then things get, you know, a dozen times more complicated than they already are. And people's taste react will react differently. And it's also, you know, if you drink the same wine in the winter or in the summer and the outside temperature is not the same and, and also the, uh, you know, uh, which temperature the wine is served makes also a difference. So there's, there's like zillions of, of elements and data points, some of which we could guess, you know, because if we ship to starting kit in January we and, and the ratings are done in January, we, we know that. Uh, and other things we don't. And then there are assessments. The magic of data science is also that you can start to grasp things from global data as well. So let's say, give you an example of that. We know the average rating of a bottle and we know the average rating of a static kit and the average rating of, you know, what people basically do. So as soon as you've raised, uh, rated like four, let's say eight or 10 balls, we know if you rate high or not as opposed to other, but, you know, some people just rate everything from three to five and others, you know, rate really low from one to three. So we take those factors into account. This is, again, these are mathematics in the end. So to to actually make a difference and reevaluate exactly where, where you are. And again, the more data you have, the more you can factor in. And if you're doing a good job there, then, you know, you're just having a better output. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of unlimited, again, can't reach perfection, just trying to, you know, assess more and more uh, data points to make your, your your system better. That's a really interesting point, though, on the, I mean, there's so many things you've said that I want to get into, but like the, in, in terms of the, the ratings alone, and just trying to normalize, I guess, between someone who rates within a very small range, and someone who, who rates within a very large range, how do you deal with leveling that? And do you then, because you can browse your wines through through the, through the Palette Club website and they've got, they've got ratings on them, right? So are you using the customer rating for that or are you using the, the, the adjusted rating? I mean, how do you deal with that? 
we don't want to confuse the customer and we think it's it's not relevant to show um, what other people think about that. Well, oh, yeah, you haven't got that. Sorry, my, my mistake. You've got the match point on it. Because I think this is a problem that has been that sort of existed in recommendations for a very long time in terms of like, you know, you can go on Amazon and you can see there'll be a mixture of star ratings. And for a given product, someone might have like a, a three-star rating for the product saying the delivery was really slow. And actually, that's a misunderstanding of what that recommendation was for. You know, it was for the product, not for the delivery from Amazon. So actually, your approach to it, where you're not showing that, but you're dealing with matching instead, is a really interesting approach. And I wonder if it could be applied to something like Amazon, but that might be a bigger challenge for those guys. Well, again, I think it depends on categories. Uh, you know, there, for me, there are three kinds of category of products, right? There are products which where the crowdsourced reviews or your social graph basically um, just makes sense, such as you know, most a lot of the categories in Amazon, a lot of you know Yelp type of stuff, TripAdvisor, etc. Then there are categories where it's the experts which count, like if you. If you know, if you buy electronics, for instance, or maybe you know certain games or things like that, and then there are categories such as music or taste, which it's very, very personalized. It doesn't mean the other information are completely irrelevant. It's just what is the primary score rating which counts. And not to mention, you know, there's a very, very big problem in all those uh, ratings, reviews, and Amazon included, with fake reviews, which cost them like so much money. They actually, you can read articles about it. They say they hired thousands of people to combat uh, fake reviews, and also regulators are coming in because of that. So it's a it's a very large and complicated world uh, out there. You know, I'm actually happy that we focus on one thing only, which is like your particular taste and personalization, and then match that to the products uh, without too much fuss around. It doesn't mean, again, we use global data to to you know, to make sense of everything. We use also things we don't show to the customer. So you don't want to explain everything uh, because then it gets like, oh my God, it's like too much information. You, and you've got to leave a bit of magic, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there are things which define, right, uh, the logic of that uh, behind it. Um, so, I guess you're still quite reliant on the sommelier. I'm going to. I've completely butchered that word, but you, you're still quite reliant on them to, uh, to 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 be able to categorize that wine off off the bat. I suppose. Yeah, which is again, sommeliers are humans as well, so they have also their flaws in matter of what they assess and rate and how they taste. Um, so. If your question is about could we venture out and you know and use a lab, uh, the answer is yes. Of course, you could do that as well. And there are many ways. Uh, maybe we come to the combination of both. You know, if you consider as perfect as it is, it can be would be a combination between uh, molecules and lab assessment data and sommelier and human assessment data. And, and yes, this is maybe where we are going in the future. And you could have all sorts of other data combined. You know, I've, asked, I've been asked many times about DNA. So obviously your DNA is a component of what your taste is today. But then when I dug into that, there were um, two problems. First of all, you know, getting your DNA through all these like platforms is quite um, has a lot of issues with privacy. And the second thing is, 
We figured from research is that your starting DNA with taste will, of course, open or close certain doors. You know, if you have the bitterness gene or the whatever the the cilantro gene, which is very well known, like I think twenty percent of people have that. So, of course, that can be defined by your DNA. But then, in the end, it's really about all this taste cycle and the fact that you like certain things at certain moment in your in your life is very is still a very unknown field. There are people working on that, but it's, you know, your taste of today, if you're like, you know, 35 is defined by, you know, what you've been exposed to your childhood, your context. And uh, the DNA is, of course, a, a factor, but it's only one among a lot of other things. So, you know, we stick to as close as possible to the truth and as simple as possible for the consumer. And this is why we came up with, you know, we do the heavy lifting with the sommelier part on one end, and then, you know, we just ask the consumer to rate from one to five and blind taste mode. Again, it produces results, which are already pretty satisfying. So that's an endless list of possibilities of what you could do if you start introducing DNA into the field, I suppose, but they would be fascinating to see what the data would tell you. But uh, no, my question around the sommelier was more to do with, um, that's probably a limiting factor in the number of wines you can have on the site, I guess. Is your intention to try and keep that quite boutique, or you know, do you want to be able to 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 categorize every wine? You know, what's where are you pitching it? No, our intention is 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 definitely very ambitious and to make a dent in the world of wine, uh, much further than you know just our own customers, and we want to open our our IP to to others and maybe as a platform as well. There's, you know, the, the training of, there are thousands of sommeliers uh, in the world and I mean, they can be trained very well and can taste bottles everywhere. So, so basically they have a profile. We could e- even then, you know, have a specific data about the profile of a sommelier to also avoid some certain biases. But the logic is, you know, we could give access to thousands of sommeliers to the back end, and then they rate, uh, you know, as many bottles as needed. On the business model side, we are more of a vertical model than a horizontal model. If you look at the main problem we're addressing here, which is choice, like the paradox of choice, if you enter to a classical wine store, you might have 200 different bottles, which is already very complicated. If you go online, that that on you know sites like wine.com or whatever it, the, the the problem is multiplied by 100 now, now you suddenly have whatever twenty thousand different balls and so you know you have all sorts of ways to try to choose them but it makes things very complicated so our approach is more that we have a rotating inventory uh much uh, you know faster with uh, with again smaller winemakers or bringing better value and you know you have always like 500 or 1000 maybe different skews but again they're completely curated towards your taste so everything becomes easy again through the percentage of match or through the fact that you just let the algorithms choose for you with a satisfaction guarantee by the way where does the data show where the customer's success is is it your ability to you know, just get your customers and and provide them the wine that like, yes, I love this. Or is it opening them up to kind of new wines or, or um, yeah, just surprising them? Well, it's, it's hard to answer that question because it's a mix and we don't have um, enough 
I mean, you don't exist since long enough to have done surveys and measure that precisely. What we measure is that customer satisfaction increases thanks to the algorithms, like I, I told before. So that we know is true, and 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 it's very obvious in our in our data that those customers, you know, they stay and because they're just happy because they rate the balls well and they say, well, you're doing a great job, so thank you. So, just one last thing on the data science stuff: are you are you cross referencing? profiles of people in order to potentially, I mean, the first thing that came into my mind, and which is why I asked around wildcards and suggestions is that if you have two data profiles that are very similar and you notice actually these two people, they're on different sides of the, of the country, they're very, very similar, but this person really liked this one. So we think that that person is going to, so you just, th- you just throw a wild card in there and you just, you just put in a wine that, that is maybe a slight different, but is that ever is that ever something you do basically by cross referencing the data or does or do you silo every individual person's profile uh, independently? Yeah, so every uh, profile is independent and is particular in our database, and but we use these clusters, right? So uh, we have ten clusters in Redwine, for instance. So if two people belong in the same cluster, what might come out is that, of course, the shipments might be a little bit similar, but since the shipments are not defined only by your cluster, but they're defined bottle by bottle. So let's say you have a thousand profiles and thousand bottles. That means that you have a million different matching points right so everything is really based on your on your personal tastes and 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 profile so but maybe there's another way to answer your question is that what comes into your box is also uh, by the algorithms is also defined by yourself because there is uh, one of the features there i didn't mention is you can tweak the algorithm so you can say basically i want more wines i like or more balanced or more wines to discover. So if you say more wines to discover, it stretches. Uh, So if you had two exactly same profiles, right, which doesn't happen, but let's say it would, and one says more wines I like, the other says more wines to discover, they're not going to receive the same wines in the the box. Obviously, the second one is going to have more risky stuff, but it will also give us more information uh, about their taste once they rate them. So... It's a fascinating business model, and I love how you're you know you're you're applying the AI and the data science to uh, to an industry like wine, where you really are demystifying all of that process that sits underneath it. I think it's 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 really interesting. But what I would like to cover before we have to wrap up is this isn't your first startup, right? This is uh, what number six, I think. Number five. Number, number five. Oh, this is number five. Okay. <laughs> not, not not so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping ahead a little bit. I wonder what the number six is going to be, but number five, number five. <laughs> well, it's on the cards, I think, at the pace you seem to be going. So, um, how did you get into this? What made you? What made you trade change the take this sort of direction of you know you're not going to be an employee, you're going to go and build startups, and you're going to get stuff off your ground off the ground of your own, and you know you've been very successful in it. And uh, you know how, how? Just talk to us about how you got started doing that. Yes, thank you. Well, when I got out of business school in Paris, uh, at that time, you know, in, in the mid 90s, uh, there wasn't, I mean, I, I don't know if that it was called even startup or business angels were not, was not a word around. 
And now obviously everybody wants to build businesses, but I, I was one of the only few of my year graduating that started a company because I wanted to be whatever, I wanted to build companies. So, and then the journey is you build companies as a pure breed entrepreneur like me, because you find problems around you. And then at some point you can't sleep at night, you want to solve that problem, right? So. The Palette Club came at a moment where it's a little bit in the middle of everything I did before. I did e-commerce and travel business. I did a recommendation app. I did some data science. And this was a passion for a long time, but I was not in the wine industry at all. I just think it's better when you come from the outside, but you have, you know, you bring in a little bit of a new view, a disruptive view, a little bit of the market. And I figured not only that the problem makes sense to be solved, but that the industry is really big and working the same way for decades, right? So if you think about it, it's only 5% of the market online in the US. And that is because of regulations. And I think it's also because innovation hasn't really happened. Basically, the part which has moved online is mostly convenience. So you have like a driver basically sending wine up to you with not so much added value about, you know, what is going to be picked. So, yeah. So to answer precisely to your question, I think it's uh, when you start a venture like that as an entrepreneur, it's a mix of things of what you've done before, what your knowledge is and, uh, you know, and market components where you figure, well, this might makes sense that they spend the next five or 10 years on this. And then once you venture in, you discover, of course, new things. Like, uh, you know, the original idea was about wine, but I called it Palette Club because I thought, oh, maybe this is not going to be only about wine. And the feedback from customers, I mean, was like tremendous. I can't, I couldn't ignore it when everybody's telling me, oh, I want this for cheese and chocolate and whiskey and, you know, or whatever. So, so now it has become more like, okay, so we, we're continuing to, to make a better product and, and, and increase sales in wine. And as soon as hopefully by the end of next year, we want to venture uh, as a marketplace with other uh, premium foods. And yeah, what, what appeared as well is in our smartphones, taste is not there, right? Everybody's talking about the metaverse right now and everybody's talking about you know virtual things and virtual money and crypto and all these type of stuff. But you know, taste is the real world and uh, it still needs to be measured and data applied to taste. And so I think it's particularly interesting in 2021 to work on taste, uh, it's a frontier, which is like, you know, there's, there's not much around there and it's important. Yeah, it's a sense that's missed out of the metaverse, isn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but and go, on that startup point though, what, what's harder, startup number one or startup number five? <laughs> that's a super hard question. <laughs> it's intentionally vague. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I would like to say startup number one is harder because you don't know anything. But the reality is startup number five is harder because it's a harder problem to solve. It's a way more ambitious problem than my startup one when I was 22. And also, you know, you have more pressure about getting things right because when you have 25 years of experience of building things, et cetera, you, you somehow, you're supposed to know what you're doing and have the right priorities, et cetera. Well, when you're 22 and you start a company, 
you know, the, you know, your best guess is you're going to fail and it's totally fine because you're going to learn a lot with that. So I didn't fail my first one, by the way, almost, but then we sold it in, uh, in 1999. Oh, that's just in time, I guess, then, <laughs> for dot-com boom. It wasn't a dot-com. My first oh, okay. dot-com was uh, I created in 1999 in the travel industry, which is funny because the, the travel market was only 5% online at that time, and now it's probably close to 100%. And now the wine market, the food market is only 5% online. So it's kind of, you know, you find these patterns. It's like uh, now, and it's supposed to move online 30% next five years. So there's a really like big, big surge awaiting next, in, in the next few years. So It's interesting though, when you're talking about, you know, you're solving a different or well, more difficult problem for, for your, you know, your fifth. When you were starting out at 22, did you have like, I imagine from having spoken to you for an hour that you were probably bubbling over with ideas. Did you have to sort of cherry pick which one you could actually do you know with you're young you've probably got limited capital you're trying to figure you're out of, just out of school you're trying to figure out how am i going to get this thing off the ground yeah so actually not uh, i i ventured very quickly in the first id even though i wanted you know i had a few other ids the more i grew the more ids i have i have right now i have like i don't know probably most of them are bad ideas probably, but I have like one <laughs> idea every every two days about, you know, this and that business and not necessarily related to wine or whatever things that I'm doing right now. There are so many things to, you know, you can solve or make better in this world. And there's so many great entrepreneurs doing it. So uh, no, I have way more <laughs> difficulties of choice uh, later on than in the early days. But, you know, there's one thing here is, I wish when I started that the startup and business angel world and everything, and particularly the access to knowledge was as big uh, at the time as it is today. For, for young entrepreneurs, I mean, it's amazing. They can get so much information out there on the internet and following, you know, the best entrepreneurs, the blogs, the best uh, VCs, et cetera. We didn't have that at that time. You had to figure it out yourself, basically. So... Uh, now times have changed, so it's 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 just great for for younger entrepreneurs, and and it's also great for you know um, serial entrepreneurs like, like myself because I also learn every day and I have new ideas every day, and my God, if I wasn't doing this, uh, I would probably have a hard time to choose where, where I would start. But anyway. So do you have any advice then for like either the person thinking about starting their own business or or even the serial entrepreneur, actually? You know, can, can you advise a serial entrepreneur or, I mean... Among entrepreneurs, we you know we give each other advice and we listen to each other as much as possible. It's learning. Actually, this is one of the re real main success of Silicon Valley is that learning between that very open learning. Yeah. So for for, for younger entrepreneurs, um, you know, there's so much advice out there. So I will not like you know be like typical and, and tell you, oh yeah, you should like go in and have uh, this and that. I think. Uh, the problem is because it's so hype to build businesses and they read so many good stories. First of all, they need to be reminded what you read on the internet about successes is only the 1% of, of, of success. And the other thing is uh, I see young entrepreneurs, which just go there because, you know, there's, there's money or whatever, or they're, they're dreaming. It needs to remind them that not everyone is uh, designed for that. Uh, you're entering a very hard journey in most of the time. It's, you need to be super resilient, have a lot of grit. It's very, very hard out there. There's only like 
a happy few, which suddenly, you know, they have exactly the right timing, the right product. And, you know, everybody thinks they're over smart just because they had that. I mean, you need to be a certain level smart, obviously, but you need to have all these other components. And uh, probably because it's so hype right now, there are many people who are trying to create a company and should do maybe something else. But Again, there are cohorts of great, great entrepreneurs creating right now, and makes me very happy that you know it continues to go. For serial entrepreneurs, what you know, what can I say? They, you know, we all have different experiences, so it would more be a conversation where I learn and <laughs> and they learn at the same time. I don't know. So there's like you know, it depends which field they've been in, and you know. But it sounds like the it sounds like the connections are key, though, right? You know, getting to speak to people, learning from experiences. Oh yes, I, oh yes. If if you if you're an entrepreneur and you just stay in your room and, and you don't talk to people, it's going to be much harder for you to get access to just the type of knowledge, the customer feedback, even your mindset to you know product market fit. If you don't talk to people, and it's going to be really hard. On the other hand, if you talk to the wrong people. The wrong people can be, you know, people just like telling you, you know, bad vibes and and, and not to do this. And and the wrong people can also be like talking only to your friends, which are just cheering you up and not giving you really good uh, feedback about your product. And so you don't see, you know, the, all the traps and things like that. So you have to talk to many, many different people and ask for as much, you know, clear blunt advice as possible uh, no filters no, you know as close to the truth as possible this is where you're going to make progress and obviously having a network is also important for business for funding and everything else okay good advice i think we've covered a lot we've covered an awful lot and i I'm, i wish you every bit of luck with your uh, with, with the business it sounds fantastic i'm sure you're going to learn an awful lot of stuff about wine <laughs> sure i'm learning always and including about wine for sure all right, great. Well, thank you for thank you for being on the show.